forward. There are over 4 million working-aged blind and visually impaired people in the United States. And over 2 million of these people are unemployed. This is a staggering statistic, but many people defy these odds and are happily and gainfully employed, and we wish to share their stories with the world. Hello and welcome to Vision Toward Success the podcast that highlights stories of career development and lived experience. This podcast is brought to you by the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. In our program, we feature employment success stories from visually impaired individuals for people with disabilities and their allies, in hopes of showing just how smart, hardworking, and capable this diverse community is. Welcome to Vision Toward Success. My name is David Gonzalez, and with us today is our guest, Hobie Weather, a PhD chemist, entrepreneur, and sensory expert. Now, we will hear from our interviewer, Chantel Zuzi, and our guest, Hobie Weather. Hobie, thank you so much for being here. It's just really a privilege to have uh, the opportunity to interview you today. Chantal, thank you so much. It's really an honor to be with you and to be able to chat and provide any feedback I can to your listeners, but uh, most importantly, to meet a bunch of great people from the East Coast. Can you tell us about yourself, like where you grew up and where you went to school? Absolutely. So I was born completely blind and uh, of course still am. I uh, was raised in Petaluma, California, which is just north of San Francisco about 40 miles, and it's, um, to create some context, it's, Petaluma is at the southern end of Sonoma County. And you might have heard of Sonoma County uh, because if you enjoy wine or have heard about the wine industry, a lot of wine from California comes from Sonoma and Napa, which are counties right near each other. Uh, Sonoma is just west of Napa County. I grew up with two incredible parents and one incredible brother who's two years older than me. So uh, really incredible opportunity to um, be raised by people who just understood me and what I could do in a, in a really profound way and who embraced my independence so much. You know, it was kind of hard for my parents to deal with my blindness, I think, for a little while. But with the help of a foundation called the Blind Babies Foundation, which is an independent nonprofit, here in Northern California, they were able to uh, raise me and feel totally comfortable and and confident in what they what they did and how they um, how they worked with me. I will say that uh, when I was born, for about twelve hours, my mom was really my both my parents were really concerned. Oh no, how are we going to work with with a blind son? And this is going to be a lot of work. And my mom said, Oh, I guess I better call my my childhood friend, who was also a great friend of my dad's. And uh, actually, my mom's best friend from college is who this was. And she picked up the phone 
dialed her friend Barb, and Barb's husband, Steve, answered the phone. And my mom's friend, Barb, on the back end could only hear Steve saying, Oh, no. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so, so hard. What are we going to do? Oh, no. And Barb, being the person she is who wants to know the answer right away, grabbed the phone from her husband and said, What's wrong? What's going on? And my mom said into the into the receiver, well, Hobie was born, but it looks like he's blind and probably won't gain his sight back. And Barb said, oh, you know, what a relief. Blind we can deal with. Based on the way Steve was talking, I thought he was dead, you know. And the thing there is that <clears throat> she actually was raised by her father, who was best friends with someone who was totally blind and independent and did all the all the work around their house and just was, you know, he was the handyman. And and that was his thing. He was also a professor of psychology in Arizona. Um, and she just, blind was fine. Blind was no big deal to her because she was raised by or with a, a blind person close at hand who was super successful. So it's amazing how being around someone who is also blind can shatter our low expectations and just make us feel totally comfortable with it, um, with blindness in general. So I think that's huge. And that story always, you know, is, is something I think about when I think about blindness and, and what, you know, basically helped my parents say, okay, we're just going to do this. There's nothing, nothing wrong with our son. We're going to be the best parents of a blind child we can possibly be. And boy, they were. I'll also tell you that I was in regular education all the way through my uh, schooling. I attended public school. Uh, the elementary school was a school called Cherry Valley School. I uh, went there from kindergarten through sixth grade. And Petaluma Junior High and Petaluma High School had a great experience in the Petaluma education system. And then ended up going on to the University of California, Davis, uh, for both my undergraduate and graduate studies. Thanks so much for sharing. I can really imagine having a blind child that can be very intimidating, but really, um, I'm so glad that your parents got that courage, you know, and they were like, we can do this. <laughs> Speaking of school, what kind of accessive technology did you use in school? You know, it's interesting. I used, um, in the beginning, I, I used a Perkins Braille uh, writer or Perkins Brailler, um, which I know was developed in your state um, in elementary school uh, to write out uh, papers that I would write. I would just write hard copies of them to do math problems, to, uh, you know, write down my scientific findings, et cetera. And it wasn't really until uh, probably fifth grade that I started using my first note taker, which was a Braille and speak. And then in uh, seventh grade, I moved on to a Braille light Um I believe also a Freedom Scientific product. Later in high school, moved on to use a Braille Note. And all the way through college, I actually used a Braille Note PK. And now I'm using a Hymns Polaris uh, after college uh, for my note taker. I learned to type when I was in, starting in probably fourth grade. My parents were, I grew up in the time, so I was born in 87, just to provide context. And um, the early 90s when I was going through school and, and growing up, was a time when computers were just up and coming. So it was, you know, the Perkins Brailler was still very much the fashionable thing to use. Um, but I did learn to type uh, pretty early on because my parents were progressive and my dad actually worked with computers for his, for his job as a communications technician. 
Uh, so he was pretty, you know, thought it was really important that my brother and I learn, learn computers and learn to type. Uh, that was a great experience. And um, yeah, started using a laptop with uh, JAWS for Windows in uh, eighth grade, ninth grade. Typed a lot of my own papers. I really became um, well-versed in technology. When I graduated high school, I needed it to get through college. That was when I was using my Braille note taker and my computer moved a little more towards my computer for most uh, most work that I would do. Uh, my note taker was literally what I would use in class to take notes and what I'd use my calculator and all that, but uh, use my computer for, for most things. Uh, when I went to graduate school and studied computational chemistry, uh, it was all computer-based. And I did, I used 3D printing, which I consider an, ex an assistive technology there uh, as well. Might be more mainstream, but but I used it in an assistive manner for sure. Um, and now, as an entrepreneur, I, I'm all on my computer. That's what I do. Wow. And did you know anyone who was blind or visually impaired in your, in your college or in your community? You know, I did. I, I knew quite a few people. Um, it wasn't a huge thing for me to, like, it wasn't a big part of my upbringing that I I exclusively hung out with people who were blind or visually impaired, but I definitely knew uh, some people my age who were blind. But also, even while I was growing up, my mom's cousin, my mom's first cousin, was actually married to Mike May, who was a blind skier and uh, a guy who, who gained a little bit of his sight back. He's, you know, you probably have heard of him in the in the blindness community. Uh, may have heard of him in the blindness community. He was actually a role model uh, for me and my parents. Um, so that was great. And then I, I did some work with the National Federation of the Blind when I went to their first uh, science camp where we actually, as a high school student, I worked with 11 other high school students to uh, build, assemble, and launch a 10-and-a-half-foot rocket off of one of NASA's uh, launch pads at Wallops Island, which is a, a you know space flight center. So that was incredible. Uh, that was a real opportunity. It got me in touch with a lot of blind folks who I stayed in touch with um, throughout college. Uh, yes, some blind folks came in and out of the university that I was at. I befriended some of them. And uh, yeah, you know, it was, I, I definitely knew blind blind people. Um, and a lot of them were role models as I, as I grew up. What I would say is that observing blind scientists and engineers and whatnot in their, in their workplace and, you know, working hard and, and getting things done was really inspiring to me telling me that I could, if I wanted to, you know, do the same type of stuff. We all need that. We all need role models to look up for. And um, did you work during your time, like when you were in college? And how was it finding a job while being blind or visually impaired? You know, it's a good question. I, um, I actually worked... For myself, even uh, in college, I tutored chemistry. And, you know, it's a little harder sometimes to show people that, hey, I'm, I'm blind, but I can help you just, just the same as anyone else with your chemistry. We'll just talk about it instead of, um, you know, looking at, uh, looking at diagrams and, you know, me drawing stuff for you to see. We would just talk about things. So all the way through my undergraduate work, I, uh, I, taught chem I tutored chemistry. And... Uh, you know, would just go into classrooms. I started doing it for free, actually, and said, hey, if you need help with your chemistry, I'm, 
I'm starting this out. This is uh, in general chemistry where I started uh, the year after I took general chemistry. And uh, yeah, you know, I was just there and I would, I would help. And I had my office hour when I would tutor. I also, um, you know, would, would meet with people one-on-one -on -one and, and that let people know, okay, this guy can actually do what he's, you know, what he says he can do. And then eventually I, you know, I worked with some of those same students as they worked their way up into organic chemistry and inorganic chemistry. And then I charged per hour uh, eventually because people knew what I could do and they, they were convinced that it was worth it. We have to show people what we can do in a, in a positive manner that they can follow and understand and, and connect with so that they will, you know, believe in us and hire us and, uh, and trust that we will do the job that we say we can do. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely something we have to, we have to work on, you know, as a society, but uh, yeah, it's, it's harder. You have to, you have to fit a mold. What I would say is that particularly at the, near the end of my graduate tenure and after graduate school, I pretty much knew that I was, I had a desire to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to use business entities that I created to solve problems. I did apply at a few positions as a as a sensory person and really as a sort of translator between scientific research and development teams at you know some large food companies and their sales and marketing teams that really communicated with the public and the consumer. So it was a it was a really productive, you know, thing to apply for, but didn't necessarily get those positions because people again didn't know didn't know what they'd need to do to accommodate me. And that's one of the things that I think is is really unfortunate and um, something that, you know, that I think about a lot uh, and, and worry about, frankly, is that, you know, I think that one of the reasons that we're, that it's harder to, to find employment uh, when you're blind is that it's not necessarily that people question what we can do. It's them being worried about what accommodations we are going to demand and what they're going to have to accommodate with accommodate that what they are going to have to accommodate us with under the ADA. And I think they're, they're scared of that. Um, and I just wish we could take away all that fear and say, just work with us. We will be trustworthy, great people. And we can, we can do what we say we can do. And if we need a help, if we need a hand with something, we will let you know and, and get the proper assistance that we need. <clears throat> so to me, it's really interesting. Um, the cycle and, and why people have a hard time maybe understanding what it means to have blind people on their staff. But I think we just have to show them that, um, you know, we, we work hard, we will let you know what we, if, and what we need. And, and there's really no, no problem. The, uh, the thing that I think is, is a bit problematic there is that people in the past have, um, maybe ask for more than, than they, than they need and threatened with lawsuits and this sort of thing. There are places where that stuff is needed, but I think that we need to be careful when we use those, those tools and play those cards, because I think they can scare people. They can make people really fearful. And I just want to be careful that we don't make to, you know, that we don't scare employers away from, you know, hiring us on and making us a part of their team. So, um, Answer your question, yes, it, finding work can be hard, but I love working for myself where I can just explain what works for me and get clients for my consulting company and start other companies that, you know, that where, where it's not a big deal.
you know, where I can work. Wow, amazing. And, and why did you major in science? What inspired you to pursue becoming a scientist? It's a good question. It was a desire to teach science that, that did it. You know, I think like most people, or like a lot of people, I shouldn't say most, like a lot of people, I was really inspired by a high school science teacher. My chemistry teacher was an amazing, amazing teacher and just got me so excited about chemistry. It was an interesting experience, though, because she was one of these people who, um, to the whole class, would talk so positively about chemistry. This is this is the science of life, well, of, you know, atoms and molecules. This is the science of what you eat and what you breathe. This is really the science that makes the world what it is. You know, this you should be excited about this. And then we would, you know, she would lecture and we would take notes and we'd go in the lab and put what we learned into practice. And it was all great. She was also the one who would tell me, you know, before and after school or during tutorial when I would get assistance from her. Yeah. And I'd say, hey, I, I listen to you. I think I do want to study chemistry. You know, do you think this is the right path for me? She would say, oh, Hogan's. Going to be a lot of issues that you come across, and I don't know how this is going to work for you. Okay, that's that's really too bad and hard to hear. And you know, I I thought well maybe chemistry isn't right, but I just loved it. I loved the material too much to to let it go. And I said I know I can convince her that it makes sense for me to stay in chemistry um, and go on and study chemistry in college. By the way, I wow or when I. Um, got into that chemistry class. I tested into honors chemistry and she had had me as a physical, the instructor had had me as a student in physical science when I was a freshman. And when I tested into honors chemistry, I think her reaction was, oh, okay, how do we, how do we make this work? So, you know, I worked with her to, you know, put together a plan where I would find an assistant um, who would be with me in the lab and help me take notes and that sort of thing. And we worked with uh, the district office and found someone who took the class before me, the year before me, who was an excellent assistant and um, did a lot of work with me. And it just it just made sense. It just worked out. Um, so that was that was a great opportunity where she felt comfortable with me in the lab. Anyway, that was a digression from the fact that I knew that I could convince her by the second semester that, hey, this chemistry does make sense and chemistry doesn't have to be so visual And then I figured it out. I figured out what I was going to do. And I went to her classroom. It was during, I still remember it. It was early in the morning before school started when I went in and she literally, you know, was, was in her room getting ready. And I said, you know, you always tell me that chemistry is a, is a visual science and it's going to be hard for me to study it. But I've got to tell you that nobody can see atoms. So I think chemistry is really a cerebral science, a science that we think about when, and we might use our eyesight just to understand when a few chemical changes may happen, but not, not for everything because we can't see that much of the electromagnetic spectrum. So what else is happening beyond what we, you know, what we can see? There's a lot. And I want to study chemistry. And she said, okay, you've got a really good point. None of us can see atoms, and you may have an advantage there. So from that point forward, she became, and still is to this day, a 100% ally of mine and supporter 
of my my goals and mission um, to to succeed in chemistry. So that's been an incredible relationship. And um, I always wanted to teach. I thought that I really wanted to teach chemistry. Uh, and that's what, and, and I, you know, I didn't know that chemistry was going to be the right field for me. I, I basically wanted to teach. I wanted to be in academics and I wanted to give back as a teacher. Um, I didn't really ever have a desire to be a researcher, a career researcher where I would study chemistry, you know, and have a research group and, and really, you know, be a, be a researching professor. I really wanted to be a teaching professor. That was always my goal. And uh, I had the opportunity, quite frankly, of teaching some chemistry during graduate school. And uh, parts of it were not as accessible as I thought. And I can talk about that in a, in a bit. But that's what made me decide that, you know, I'm definitely a chemist. I study chemistry. I think about chemistry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just not necessarily a, uh, you know, uh, it's not what I do day to day now. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. But, but I still use chemistry in my, in my work. And what would you tell someone who is visually impaired and or blind and want to pursue um, science and and have had so many negativity from people and they want to give up? I'd say, you know, you have to believe, you have to have a will that, that knows this is what you want. If you have that will and you have that desire to push forward and succeed and do something to the best of your ability you will be able to achieve that. You will absolutely be able to achieve. And you have to believe in yourself. Really, you know, I wrote a, an article um, about that is entitled Five Mindsets to Overcome Challenges and Raise Expectations. And these are the mindsets that I took on while in school that allowed me to succeed in science and, and also the ones that I use every day to drive myself and push myself forward as an entrepreneur it's really about knowing that you can do it and putting your, your mind to the task and getting it done, getting it accomplished, whatever you set your mind to. And if you want to be a scientist, if you want to study science and give back to the scientific community, you will absolutely be able to. Um, that, is, that is first and foremost. You just need to push yourself and tell yourself that you'll be able to do it and it, be able to explain to people calmly and casually what you can do and why you want to be a scientist and what you're working on in order to become a scientist so that they have full understanding of you, what your goals are. And, you know, if someone doesn't get the biggest pushback you're ever going to get from negativity, I don't think comes from people who are really discriminatory saying, no, you're blind, you can't study science. It's just a lack of knowledge. It's a level of ignorance of what we have as, as, you know, for tools available to us. You're going to find yourself working with a lot of sighted assistants. Uh, you need to plan that out well. Um, I did a lot of work with, uh, with sighted folks um, as my lab assistant, as my um, reader and assistant academ assistance academically. Um, you know, you'll have to work with people. And you'll have to ask people to read measurements from lab equipment. And you'll have to work with someone to put, probably, I'm not saying definitely, you'll probably have to work with someone to prepare your, your lab reports and make them look pretty once the experiments are done. And you'll, you might need a hand reading the textbook and having figures described to you. But if you do it and you believe in yourself and you have a, a stubborn will, you, you can just push right through and get it done and, and feel really good about it.
And I think that that one of the things that's so important for blind scientists or you know for any anyone focusing on any career is if you if you have the desire and the passion to do something, you can do it. And if you have people telling you you can't, if you want to do it bad enough, just figure out why they're not right and explain to them that this is what you want to do, this is what makes sense for you, and just push forward with it. Just knowing yourself, knowing your heart that this is what you want and and you know, talk to people like me, talk to people around you who have done things that, you know, that are similar and you will, you know, push forward and you will succeed. Thank you so much. That's a great advice and I'm sure that many will agree with me. How has it been for you to work as a scientist? Has that been a good experience? And what what is the most favorite part of your job and what is the least favorite part of your job? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh thank you for that. You know, I um as I said before, what my goal was to teach chemistry. Um that's what I wanted to do and that's why I got my PhD, I earned my PhD in chemistry. While in graduate school, I had the pleasure of teaching uh some chemistry classes. And my goal wasn't to teach advanced chemistry. I wanted to get people excited early on about science and about chemistry. So I wanted to walk into a full lecture hall of freshman chemistry students at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning during the fall semester. Everybody's just gotten done with summer. They're not really feeling like being back at school or being at school for the first time if they're freshmen. I wanted to walk into that classroom where 90 plus percent of the students don't even want to be there. It's not their core uh, class they need to take for their, or it's not a class they want to be in. It's just a prerequisite for whatever their major that they that they are interested in requires. And I wanted to go into those classrooms and make chemistry, turn chemistry from a boring, difficult, daunting subject into one of their most exciting classes and get a few of them to say, I wouldn't say all of them, but enough of them to say, wow, this is interesting. And think about maybe studying chemistry further. Because I I was impassioned by a great teacher, and I wanted to do the same thing for students who I worked with as well. And um, I had the pleasure of teaching a couple of chemistry classes, uh, while at freshman chemistry classes while in graduate school. And I don't know if it's unfortunately or just the, the fact of the matter, but students, I learned quite quickly don't speak chemistry anymore and they don't read the textbook before class. They want to see pretty pictures and uh, nice video animations of concepts. So I was spending a lot of my time and money, frankly, working with assistants to uh, put together these, these animations and, um, and, you know, pictures for them to look at. But then I would have to spend a great deal of time working with my assistants to memorize these presentations so that I could present them coherently and make sense to the, the students I was teaching. And it wasn't really fun for me because I had to get so much assistance. Students said that I, I spoke too much, I spoke too quickly and didn't use enough pictures, even though I was really trying to use pictures. And it became a challenge for me, um, honestly, if I'm being totally honest, to teach chemistry. So that's why I really became an entrepreneur when I graduated um, with my, uh, you know, with my 
degree in, in chemistry. I, I went into food and beverage, which is an industry that I'd, I'd done some work in before. Hopefully, hopefully we can talk about that in a little bit, how I got involved with that. But I do you know a lot of scientific work as a sensory expert in the, in the food and beverage space and, and a little bit of chemistry in the product design space as I design products to be truly appealing to all the senses. Um, my favorite part of my job is working with people and getting them excited. I still give back in the education sphere all the time. I get so excited, whether it's entrepreneurial or scientific, but my passion is getting people excited about things they didn't know they could be excited about. That is really my, my big goal and my passion. Um, and that's what I love about my job. What, am I, what is my least favorite part of my job? Well, whether I'm a chemist or an entrepreneur, I don't love doing paperwork and keeping track of records and all the back-end administrative work and bookkeeping and all that is not, is not what I love, but you have to do it to, to succeed. Have you seen an increase in, um, in the need for more inclusiveness in the science world? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that every, every field benefits from uh, more diversity because I think diversity uh, makes it easier for us to solve problems. But I also feel that, um, you know, when we're inclusive, you know, when we're diverse, we need to be more inclusive as well and um, welcome more people to the table. And yes, I think the scientific community always can benefit from more inclusion and bringing more unique sets of abilities to the table to, you know, think about science and ultimately solve problems. You know, I, I think that really, if you just expect, you know, standard able-bodied, you know, white men to be, <laughs> to be doing things, you know, you do not get the same results as when you, when you empower a lot of, a lot of different groups to step into the laboratory and, brush off their hands and, uh, you know, get, get excited and get ready to, you know, get ready to think, think in the scientific space and in the scientific way. Yeah, I think there's always a need for more inclusion, but I also think that particularly academic universities these days are, are really being quite good at, at bringing that diversity to the forefront and inclusion to the forefront. Where do you see science um, growing in the next 20 years? <laughs> And do you see any new areas of study that is needed? I absolutely uh, see science growing in the next 20 years. One of the main areas that I think we're going to be exploring more and more is the area of space flight and uh, how we interact in a microgravity environment. Um, I think that a lot, of, a lot of people are going to be exploring this. You look at the big companies that sort of... Um, visionaries, if you will, of, of our time today in, uh, in Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos in, you know, who have, of course, all Elon's companies and Amazon with Jeff Bezos and this sort of thing. And they're really thinking about space. That's a, that's a place they're going. Um, they, they see a need for it clearly. And, uh, I think that over time, uh, we're going to, we're going to see a, a push for, you know, increased knowledge and awareness of that. And I do think uh, getting people who are blind and visually impaired um, into space and, and navigating, learning how to navigate microgravity environments is going to be a really interesting thing. The Lighthouse for the Blind, who I do a lot of work with right now, is uh, actually launching a, uh, a space flight program to uh, basically find out what the capabilities are of, of blind folks in microgravity. They're first taking an aircraft flight 
in a parabolic manner, uh, also called the vomit comet, if you will, uh, that uh, you know descends rapidly and basically allows its passengers to experience weightlessness, uh, then taking that, that all to a suborbital flight and maybe even taking it to an orbital flight later. So, so they're really at the cutting edge and, and super innovative about everything they do. Um, so I, I think that's pretty incredible. Um, and, and I think that's an area that we're going to need to explore more. I also think that, um, you know, chemistry is, uh, is a growing and ever changing, uh, subject and particularly biochemistry. Um, we're going to need to figure out ways to produce meat that don't involve animals that involve growing cells and reactors, you know, to protect the environment. Um, I think climate change is a huge deal. You know, I think we can, I know we can all see around us and feel around us that the environment is, is warming and we need to, we need to think about that. And, and it's 100% scientific, you know, why that's happening. So, and I, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm really just stating facts. We need to, to step up and, and figure out why this is happening and how we can, what we can do. Uh, in our in our own little way to um, address and solve uh, those those problems. So I I'm very inspired by the future of science and very inspired by what uh, you know the the young minds that we have coming into the field. And I think there's there's a lot we can do to uh, basically push back the frontiers of science and and create future opportunities and possibilities um, in the in the industry. Um, I think that science needs more than ever now, more diverse opinions or uh, opinions from different perspectives. And the blind and visually impaired perspective is absolutely one that uh, needs to be at the forefront of what we do scientifically. Absolutely. And do you work in that field currently? What do you do for work right now and how accessible is the industry that you work in at the moment. Yeah, I actually, what's great about my work is um, I'm an entrepreneur. So I start companies and I work with those companies to grow and um, solve problems ultimately. So I, um, you know, what I would say is that what's nice about being an entrepreneur is that being able to create my own job, I never worry about, okay, is this accessible? Am I being accommodated correctly? Because I create the position and then I create the, uh, you know, what I need and the accommodations for it. So um, at, right at the end of my graduate studies, I, uh, my graduate tenure, I went to a childhood friend who's actually my, my life partner as well, who's always wanted to, um, you know, work for himself, just like I've always kind of wanted to work for myself. And we decided to start a business uh, really where I would, um, would be a, a sensory uh, literist and a sensory designer. So that's what I do is a lot of sensory strategy, sensory design consulting, food, aroma, you know, food and beverage uh, consulting in the, in the flavor space, flavor, aroma, and texture. And I also do a lot, host a lot of experiences for, um, for folks to really experience. I started in wine, actually, to experience wine differently uh, called Tasting in the Dark, which is a truly blindfolded wine experience. And now we do them in all sorts of industries, really allowing people to experience life in a in a great way when they temporarily have their their eyesight removed, uh, and that's that's a lot of fun to do that experiential work. Um, I also so I'm a I'm a consultant in the in the food industry and in the packaging and product design industry, 
really providing my thoughts about a lot of designers use their eyesight so much for the for the work that they do and um, sort of forget about the other senses. So I help them think about those other senses. I am doing a project with a food company right now that uh, does make, uh, you know, they're, they're a scientific company. Can't say too much about them uh, because of the NDA that I have, but they, I definitely am able to pair my science knowledge with my knowledge of the food and beverage industry and of marketing, which is a lot of fun. Um, I also have a sales and marketing firm, uh, sorry, a creative and marketing firm uh, called SensePoint, which I founded in 2017, which is doing a lot of really exciting work right now as well. Um, finally, my, uh, I have a seasonings brand with uh, my business partner and I started our own line of, uh, of gourmet seasonings, and that is being launched later this week. So before Friday, that's called Hobie's Essentials and can be found at Hobie, H-O-B-Y dot com, which is also a great way for any of your, your listeners to get a hold of me. Uh, so that's one thing that we're doing and we're really figuring out the marketing plan there. And then the, uh, the other one is that's, that's forthcoming, we're just raising funding for now, is a canned uh, and kegged ready-to-drink cocktail and wine company uh, called Blind Truth Beverage. So more to come on that. Stay tuned for that. But uh, that's, that's coming as well. So I am an entrepreneur. I did study science, and I do use science in my career. But as you can hear, I am definitely, uh, definitely more in the food and beverage space and in the entrepreneurial space now. For me, being an entrepreneur is um, is not about money and power. And when a lot of people hear about entrepreneurship, they think about, oh, that, that must be, you know, based on money and power and, you know, starting companies and selling them for a lot of money and this sort of thing. For me, it couldn't be further from the truth of what entrepreneurship is about. Entrepreneurship is about um, solving problems through creating businesses. And I just love to solve problems for people that, you know, that help them live a more fulfilling and, and more exciting life um, and, frankly, more accessible life. So accessibility, diversity, and inclusion are at the forefront of all of the work that, that I do um, as an entrepreneur and, and as a business owner. So, I'm, I, like I say, I'll, I'll summarize that. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a consultant. I have my own consultancy called Hobie Wedler Consulting. I've got my spice company. I have a a creative and marketing studio called SensePoint, and we're building a company called Blind Truth Beverage. And I don't know what's going to happen year, you know, in years to come after this, but I also, for my work, do a lot of giving back. So I'm the chairman of the board currently for the Earl Baum Center of the Blind, which is a training center primarily for uh, people who are fairly new to sight loss. And I also work on a local nonprofit that uh, gives gives funds back to the uh, schools, all the all the local area schools around me in Petaluma the Petaluma Educational Foundation. So I, I do a lot of work, but I also give back as much as I can. Uh, how accessible is the work that I do? Well, it's quite accessible because I figure out what I want to do and I make it accessible. <laughs> um, that's a lot of what I do. So it's, it's fun. Yeah. That's a good answer. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned sensory. Uh, what role sensory played in your life? And why do you think it is important to maximize the experience of taste and smell? I've always, as a kid, I've, I've loved understanding my, you know, my, my surroundings through smell, through under, you know, remembering what different areas, as I'm, for instance, walking 
around my elementary school campus smell like and using that as a tool to kind of help me get around. Um, that's been, that's been, you know, really a, a part of my life. And I've always had a good palate. And I spent a lot of time as a kid cooking. My parents would uh, ask me to make them large pots of soup that they would use, uh, you know, they would freeze and take, take for their lunches when they were working. Um, and I did a lot of that and, and had, a, had a really good time doing that um, and, and really trained my palate that way. Um, and I, I just created a career out of it. Also, I did a lot of, uh, you know, growing up in Sonoma County where wine grapes are grown. I've always had a love and an appreciation for what I call hyper locality, things that are going on right around me, right in my backyard, um, that are then, you know, and, and winemaking was one of those. It was people were harvesting grapes and turning them into wine and selling that wine all over the, all over the world, basically. And that wine came from, you know, that those grapes came from right near where I live. And I just thought that was great. So I took a few introductory winemaking classes and wine appreciation classes at Davis, uh, UC Davis, University of California, Davis is as a great wine program and, uh, and took some classes through them and ended up really getting into the culture of wine and understanding tasting wine and, and how that works and utilizing my palate very strongly in that in that industry. Um, so I, I, I did a lot of that and, um, ended up in a, in a career hosting these truly blind tastings for Francis Ford Coppola, uh, who, if you don't know, is a, is a filmmaker, uh, did that for several years, actually was their winemaker of record for a few years and, uh, just love the work that we do, um, in, in all capacities. It's really, really exciting. And I've always, and I'm just passionate about it. So so that's that's what I love doing. That's what I I do for a for I, I did that for a living, and that's what got me into this world of using my senses to really understand the uh, the world of of sensory and help other people understand it. So that's um, you know I think it's important to focus on taste and smell and uh, and touch as well because these are senses that that really do matter to our everyday uh, everyday life and. You know, I think a lot of times in product design we don't, and, and flavor design, we don't think enough about how something really tastes and how something might interact with our senses that are not visual, because most people use statistics uh, that I've, I've seen tell me that most people use their eyesight to obtain 85 to 90% of information from their surroundings, which means they're only using, they're, they're using four perfectly good senses to only obtain 10 to 15% of the information from their surroundings. So, you know, we're always using our other senses. They're always turned on. They're always there. Um, but I, I think that, you know, we don't often think that, that maybe the way a, a package smells or the way a, a new product that you buy smells or sounds when you open the packaging affects our either positively or, neg positively or negatively affects our appreciation of it. And that's what I try to do is to streamline all, all sensory aspects of, of products and foods and beverages to make them appealing to all our senses and not just our eyesight. You know, I, I think it's, that's the importance I think it plays. And I, I, I love doing it. You also mentioned testing in the dark, which is a truly blindfolded wine. And would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. When, you know, when I came on with Francis Ford Coppola in 2011, um, it was because a friend actually introduced me to him. 
uh, friend named Chris Downey, who's a, a, a fellow blind person. He's a blind architect here in California, who I actually was able to, to work with and get to know at a program offered by the National Federation of the Blind um, in uh, 2009. He, or, yeah, no, I... Yeah, I met Chris in 2009. In 2011, ironically, right concurrent with the end of my undergraduate tenure and start of my graduate tenure, Chris uh, introduced me to Francis Ford Coppola's team and said they are looking, you know, Coppola experience, Mr. Coppola experienced a uh, a wine or a food tasting experience in Asia that was under blindfold, but maybe not led by blind people. And he wanted to make it a little more authentic at his winery. So we, um, you know, he said, I, I want to do this, but I want it to be hosted by an actual blind person. And little did we know how far the program would go. By the way, Chris worked, he was a, a sighted architect. Now he's a blind architect. He did a lot of work with uh, Mr. Coppola on his property um, in, in 2006. And that's how he got to know him. Chris got to know Mr. Coppola. And uh, yeah, I began working uh, to innovate the experience. They really gave me the, the reins, so to speak. And I was able to build a whole uh, cohesive experience of smelling different aroma compounds um, that I, you know, aroma samples that I prepare basically to um, sort of calibrate people and get their aromatic vocabulary going. So when they smell lemon, they remember and know, okay, this is what lemon smells like. And, um, you know, if they smell that aroma more subtly in a wine, they can sort of identify it. So the aromas that I choose are, um, they're representative. They're not everything by any means that we would taste in a wine. But, you know, I tried to do between three and four aromas, um, sometimes more, sometimes fewer, to, to really prime that aromatic vocabulary. Because I, I think that our, you know, when we talk about sensory, aromas and flavors are just like colors, right? It's funny, though, is that we don't necessarily use our senses of smell and taste often enough to smell something and immediately identify exactly what it is, right? We, you know, children, when they're born, if you, you know, they learn quickly what colors are. So if you were to hold up a pen in front of my four-year-old nephew who, you know, knows his colors and it happens to be red, you say, hey, read, what color is this pen? He will undoubtedly tell you, yeah, it's a red pen, okay? But, you know, talking about smell and taste, we don't, we're not often as, as strong with identifying those. So I like to sort of show people that their senses of smell and taste and all this are, you know, just like eyesight, but, and the inputs are, are different things that, that are, are just vocabulary work. And then talk about what we smell really deeply, talk about all the different aspects, whether it's fruity or floral or grassy or leathery or, you know, uh, spice, you know, smells like spices or any, anywhere in between or all of the above, and then we taste it and we work through different breathing techniques as we breathe through the wine and really understand it. And then finally, at the end of it, we ask people, what color is this and what varietal of grape do you think this was? Um, so I did this as a hospitality experience for Francis Ford Coppola for about a year. It started as a monthly experience, then went to every two weeks, then went to every week, then went to twice a week. And uh, you know, it was like, wow, this is really taking off. And the sales team got a hold of it, and uh, the, the national wine sales team, and and brought me into the market with them uh, for critical you know meetings that they would have and critical clients that they would work with, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was it was a great deal of, of fun to be their wine winemaker or wine educator of record uh, for several years. And what was nice about that 
is I was a computational chemistry student in graduate school, and my advisor was very lenient and said, you need to do, you need to learn what is the right career path for you. So he was very willing to let me travel. And uh, because I was a computational chemist, my laptop uh, was also my laboratory. So if I could carry my laptop with me, I could, I could usually solve most problems. How has your life been affected by COVID-19? Oh, that's a good question. And I think it's, uh, I think it's one that we all can answer. Boy, uh, I think all of our lives have been affected. Um, I, I need to preserve my sense of smell and taste. I don't want to lose those. A lot of people who get COVID-19 lose them and they don't come back fully, you know, the same way they once were. So I've been really careful. I'm generally a, a healthy guy, but I've been locked down uh, for a lot of this, this pandemic, you know, really staying home and, uh, and, and just being myself, just being home um, has, you know, I've had to do it. And, and that's just, just what it's been. I would say that a lot of my clients, uh, a lot of my work sort of uh, slowed during the pandemic. It's all, a lot of it's coming back now, but a lot of what I do is in person. So it's, it's coming back now. We're able to, we're able to keep building, but uh, yeah, a lot of my work slowed. Um, when I would go out independently, you know, I, I would find that people wouldn't say, hey, you're within six feet of me. And then when I was way closer than that, they would get really nervous and worried because I was I was so close to them. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting thing, um, you know, how people how people behave, how people work. And, you know, I, I, I would say that all in all, the pandemic was really positive because it allowed me to really think about my business entities and what I do and make some restructuring decisions. The idea to start the spice brand and seasoning brand came out of the pandemic. Um, yeah, it's just it was it really defined a lot of who I who I was and and what my businesses would do. So it was a it was an opportunity to really think and really hunker down and, and make some big key decisions. How has your life experience has changed your view of the world? Well, I don't know if it's changed my view of the world because I don't know how my view of the world would be different without my life experience because I've, I've had my life experience. But what I would say is um, being blind in a sighted world, you just realize the richness of life that we all have and, um, and how important it is to maintain that positive richness of the the lives that we all live. And I just love my life. I love the things I get to do. I'm, I'm just able to hold on to it. And we all go through times of being a little more negative than, than maybe we should, but it's all about positive, positive mindset. That is my goal. That is what I do. You know, it's really, I, I feel like my life is, my life is very positive. I have a, I have a positive, cautiously optimistic view of the world moving forward. I hope that we make decisions to really help people thrive for long in the future. And I, uh, I'd like to consider myself and, and how all that comes together. So I don't know how my experience has shaped my view of the world, but I think that uh, as a scientist, and my goal is to give back to anyone who, uh, who needs my help. How did you overcome your obstacles as a blind or visually impaired person? It's about challenging ourselves in the right mindset and believing in ourselves to succeed. You know what, Chantal, it's oftentimes breaking really big problems into little bite-sized problems. So when I was entering graduate school, my first day of the PhD program, 
you might imagine what was going through my mind, this huge, difficult subject to tackle and understand and think about, how am I going to get my PhD in organic chemistry? But you break it into little problems. Okay. And I would stop myself. I'd say, Hobie, stop. Sometimes I talk to myself, you know, and say, okay, stop. Let's, what, what's the first thing you need to do? And I realized, okay, the first thing I need to do is succeed in the first classes I have to take. Then I need to succeed in the next classes. And once courses are done, now I need to really hunker down and do research that first major summer of graduate school. Okay, I've got some research findings. Now what's the next thing I need to do? I need to study and put all my focus into my qualifying exam. Okay, then that's, that's exactly what I did. Now I need to do more research. I passed that and I need to do more research. Okay, what's the next big hurdle? That's the third year seminar, which is a talk that every graduate student has to give at UC Davis to the department. So I, okay, I'll prepare. Great. I'll, I'll give my third year seminar. This is going to work well. I did it. it. People enjoyed it. Now it's time to finalize research and write, write my dissertation. So it's breaking a big problem into a, or a big challenge into a, a many bite-sized challenges that I can handle one at a time. And frankly, in my work as an entrepreneur, that's exactly what I do too. I'm building, thinking right now about building this whole brand of, of seasonings. If I were to try to do that in one day, it would be incredibly daunting. And it was daunting at the beginning. I thought it was going to be easier than it has been. But we everything takes more time than you think. And you just take everything in stride one step at a time. And you figure it out. And you just you just come to a conclusion. Thank you so much for being here. It is really a privilege speaking with you today. Thank you, Chantal. Thank you for the great interview. Welcome back to Vision Towards Success. My name is David Gonzalez, and with us today is our guest, Hobie Wedler, a PhD chemist, entrepreneur, and sensory expert. We had an opportunity to talk with Hobie after his interview and further explore how he empowers young learners to explore their disability identity. Oftentimes, students serve as educators. If a young learner is aware of their accommodation needs and is able to bring solutions to the table, this presents disability in a positive light to educators who are unfamiliar with how to create an accessible learning experience. Having self-awareness also allows students to make the most of their learning experience. Hobie believes that rather than the STEM industry needing to change as a whole, disabled students need a solid understanding of the skills they can develop. In my opinion, what we need to do is we need more understanding and accommodating of people who might look different, who might act different, who might speak differently, you know, we just need to understand that they are bright minds in and of themselves. And we, we can't let our ignorance or our, our impressions of what we think they can do and can't do, more importantly, influence their success and their ability. I uh, didn't mention this, but I had a nonprofit for about six years called Accessible Science, which I co-founded with uh, some good friends of mine and, and, uh, and also my academic advisor and my brother. And the mission of Accessible Science was to teach annual chemistry camps to blind and visually impaired high school and, uh, you know, fairly early or, or young college students. And, uh, you know, the point wasn't to, to make all of them decide they wanted to become chemists, although that would be nice if, if some of them went into chemistry. 
the goal, and, and some of them did go into chemistry, by the way, but the goal there was really to show students that they could do whatever it is they wanted, no matter how visual that, that career or that discipline they wanted to study might seem. It's really about coming to the table with a solution and a way to, to make this possible. Sometimes we don't necessarily know what the solution is. And yes, it does take longer to study these seemingly visual subjects as a blind person, but the more unique opinions that we have and the more diverse opinions that we have and perspectives that we have in STEM, the better off we're gonna be when, uh, you know, when solving problems and, and coming up with the next innovations. So I think that, um, I don't blame people in STEM who are who are able-bodied and you know question whether people with disabilities can can do things. I often put it on the people with disabilities to say, "Hey, this is what I can do. This is what I will do for you, and let's let's work together." So it was a lot of the reason that I was successful, you know, through to to the end of earning my PhD in chemistry, or through to earning my PhD, I should say, is because I would tell people what I was capable of, and they didn't doubt me they just said okay that's you know I, I got some pushback from a few people and there's always going to be turkeys out there and you just say okay you know work with work with the next person then um you know but for the most part tell people what you can do they say okay that sounds good let's let's work together and uh things are possible but if you go in with an attitude of oh this person's not going to think i can do much and oh i need to i need to prove this that and the other and and all that Oftentimes that's going to backfire on you and, you know, people are going to, you know, if you, if you put up a fight, they're going to, their tendency is to fight back. But if you go in and calmly say, hey, this is what I can do and this is what I will do, they, uh, they're very understanding of that typically. But I think a lot of it is teaching people what it is they can actually do. Hobie's early education differed from that of most blind students as his mother worked as a teacher of the visually impaired. Having a parent that understood blindness at this level instilled in him a very high standard for what he felt he could do and the self-confidence to advocate for it. While his mother introduced him to other blind students as he went through school, he eventually connected with other blind and sighted students who he came to respect as role models. I should have also said that my mom actually was a TVI and became a TVI uh, when I was five years old. Me, you know, was going back to get her master's in special education anyway before I was born. And after I was born, specialized in, in blindness education. So she worked with other blind students. She was never my TVI or, or orientation mobility specialist, but she definitely did that work for other students in the county where I grew up, uh, right here in Sonoma County, where I am sitting right now. And that was a very special thing to have someone who was a TVI and uh, who could who could teach me a lot of a lot of things that and maybe my TVIs didn't teach me, or uh, she could you know translate transcribe things to Braille easily and quickly, or interline my Braille in, into print. Um, so that was that was great. But what it also meant is that she really wanted to and tried to connect me to other blind people, kind of my age, maybe a few years older than me, who could be sort of role models, and I, I hung out with them a little bit, but I, I always kind of felt like, let me choose my friends. I mean, the person, I shouldn't necessarily have to spend time with this person just because they're blind. Like, it felt a little bit forced sometimes, which is interesting. Um, but then, 
later on in, in my career, well, not later on in my career, later on in my sort of grade schooling, and, you know, on up through high school, when I started interacting with the National Federation of the Blind, I realized, oh, there's a great deal of blind people that I, I totally can learn from and should learn from. Um, and, and looked up to a lot of them. But, but for me, it wasn't necessarily about, it, there, there are plenty of blind role models that I, that I looked up to, but for me, my mentors came some from the blindness community, a lot from the, from the sighted community. You know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, what am I trying to say? It's not that I, I didn't have blind mentors, but I would take advice from anyone who was willing to, to give me advice. And I never dealt with people telling me I couldn't do things. I, I think it was at a very young age, my parents instilled super high expectations in me and I was never rude about telling people, oh, I can do this. Oh, you gotta let me do this. You're, you know, you're discriminating against me. It was not like that. And I can only remember a few situations where I had to deal with real, what I call turkeys, the people that um, make it so that, you know, they would they would tell me, oh, you can't do this. Oh, you shouldn't do this. And mainly because they didn't want to take the time to explain it to me and 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 work with me themselves. Holby encourages each person to be themselves and live their lives on their terms. If you are your authentic self, people will respond to that. He embraces his blindness and doesn't regret a day in his life that he was born blind. As much as we can allow people to embrace their blindness and say, this is a part of you that is unique, that you can actually use to your advantage. And I think the more that we can, that we can show either young blind people or, uh, you know, blind seniors who are, who are just losing their, or, or seniors, I should say, who are just losing their eyesight, the more that we can show them, this is a part of you that actually can give you some, some opportunities that you maybe did, didn't even know possible. You know, try to, try to make it a positive rather than, oh, you should meet these other people. You know, just whatever, whatever makes sense on a case-by-case -case basis to instill that positivity as much as possible, I think is crucial. Well, let me tell you, I feel lucky that I was born blind. I have not known the world as a sighted person. I've embraced it as a blind person. People ask me, would you ever want to get your sight back? And the answer is no. I don't want to relearn the world. I love the world that I live in. It's a lot of fun. I, I love I love the life I live. I, I think it's um, I think it's exciting. So and I think that everybody's life is exciting. And you know, it's just it's about it's about doing you in the best possible you possible. Holby has a natural love for education and thirst for knowledge and strives to instill that love for learning in his students. He enjoys helping other people find the same excitement in learning about topics that interest him. This has served him well in his journey as a consultant and entrepreneur. How have academics changed my learning experience uh, as a blind person? Well, you know, I, I've realized the importance. I, I sort of had a had a, a, a understanding um, that that I really liked knowing things, that I liked learning. And my academics showed me that whether whether I'm talking to a blind or a sighted person, I, I have the heart of a teacher. And I use that in my entrepreneurial ventures all the time. I teach people. And I'm, I don't mean I'm the type of teacher that, um, you know, that really 
it's, I don't want to be the, the person standing up there saying, hey, I know more than you or anything like that. I just want to be able to say, let's, you know, I want to show you something that maybe you didn't know you were excited about a while ago. Let's get you excited about that. And yeah, if you're not excited, that's okay. We don't have to talk about it. But getting people excited about things, and, and that's what I love about academics. It's all about learning. It's all about doing research in order to learn. I always had plan B. And that always wanting to have plan B taught me so much about other, other fields and other things that I could think about. We'd like to take the time to thank and acknowledge Hobie for being here with us today. You can reach Hobie Wedler at Hobie.com, which is spelled H-O-B-Y.com. And you can also reach Hobie Wedler at Hobie at HobieWedler.com, which is spelled H-O-B-Y at H-O-B-Y-W-E-D-L-E-R.com. Thank you for tuning into Vision Toward Success with your host, David Gonzalez, and our guest, Hobie Wedler. And now, a blindness tip from Hobie Wedler. The advice that I would give anyone, regardless of whether they have a disability, is have high expectations in yourself. Once you start to believe, oh, this is too hard for me, oh, I shouldn't do this, this is other people's work, you know, this isn't something for me. If you really want to do it, that's going to be a big problem because then you're always not going to believe in yourself and not going to push yourself hard to accomplish your goals, right? So hold your head high, have super high expectations, and take on challenges in the most positive but most, you know, um, excited and animated way possible. And also, if you don't feel comfortable doing something or you don't want to do something for whatever the reason might be, don't hold yourself back and say, oh, shame on me that I don't want to go to space or that I don't want to, you know, go on a roller coaster. That's fine. It's your decision. You do you as well as you possibly can be and be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. And that is what will drive success. If you just say, I'm going to be the best blind person I can be. I'm going to be the best, whatever, whatever I can possibly be. And you put your mind to it and you actually do it. You will succeed and you will be that great person. And I just think it's, uh, it's really exciting to, to think through that. Thank you for tuning in to Vision Toward Success. This program has been recorded and produced by Elena Regan and David Gonzalez from the Tradeswin Audio Podcast team in association with the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. Funding for this program has been provided by the Libby Duvon Award from the Fielding Institute, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and the Barry Savings Foundation. Additional episodes of this podcast can be found at www.polacenter.org backslash tradeswin or wherever you get your podcasts.